important question for you today on Resurrection Sunday. What about your afterlife? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, What are you relying on to get you to heaven? Now, that's an important question to ask today because of what today represents. You see, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is evidence for the believer that there is life after death. So if there is life after death, if that is a reality, where does that leave you? How are you going to get to heaven? That's really the question today. How do you plan on that happening? And what happens if your plan is wrong? We've been going through, as a church, uh, since January, a study in the book of Acts. Now, Acts is a New Testament book, if you're not familiar with it. It was written by a man named Luke, who was an investigative reporter. And it's basically the history of early Christianity in the very first early days. Now, in the book of Acts, by this time, Jesus has already died. And he has come back to life on Resurrection Sunday. And, and I'm serious about that. There were over 500 people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Then Jesus would spend like 40 days with his followers. And then finally he is taken back up into heaven. And that is called the ascension. And from this point on, any New Testament writer talking about Jesus, they talk about his position in heaven as sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And that's the, the, that's the place of power, of prominence. That's actually a place where the advocate would sit. And that's exactly what Jesus is seen doing for us. He is our go-between, between us and God. So Jesus has gone up into heaven, has taken his place, seated at the right hand of the Father. And now the disciples are left here on earth. They have been brought together by the Holy Spirit, by God's Spirit, into a unit, a, a body, if you will. And that body is known as the church. These early disciples, the early church, they have a mission to accomplish. First of all, Jesus said, I want you to love one another. I want that to be the characteristic of my disciples is love for one another. And then I've got this mission for you to take the message of new life into a lost and dying world. Now, last week, if you were with us... We were in chapter 6, and we we saw a a man named Stephen. We were introduced to Stephen. And here's a man who was a fairly new believer, and yet had dedicated himself to living the life that Jesus wanted him to live, both in his life and in his ministry. He was such a servant that they appointed him to be a leader of servants, if you will. And not only that, but now once we get to the last part of chapter 6 in the book of Acts, we see that God has actually empowered him to do some miracles and to be bold in his preaching. And so in chapter 7, we pick up his story as he has begun to preach, and there are certain people who don't like what's happening within this sect of Judaism known as the church, and they don't like what Stephen is saying. They've accused him of blasphemy, which is basically tearing down God, Tearing down the law, tearing down anything sacred like the temple. So we see here in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's response to those accusations. And he preaches. And he preaches a long, long sermon. By the way, it's, it's one of the longest ones that we actually read of in the New Testament. 
But what he's trying to say in this long chapter, this sermon that he gives to these people who have accused him of blasphemy, is he is saying, I am not blaspheming. I serve the same God that you are. He's just saying, but I have gotten a truth that you have not yet gotten. And, and, and it's almost like he's passionate that they would understand something because he saw how they were living their life and what they were putting their trust in. And he knew that that was not going to get them into heaven. And so he begins to use their own history to show them their error. We're in Acts chapter 7. This is going to be a three-point sermon that Stephen gives because that's what all sermons should be, is a three-point sermon, right? And he begins by talking about the beginning of the, Judaist, uh, the, the, the Jewish faith. And he brings up the father of faith, a guy named Abraham. Let's see what he says about that, starting in verse 2 of chapter 7. This is Stephen's sermon. He says, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said. Go to the land I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. You can see how outlandish that promise is. Abraham, 75 years old, has not had a child yet and has promised this by God. God spoke to him in this way, verse 6, Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, says God. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. And then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. And later Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. We are told in the Bible that once God makes this outlandish promise that Abraham actually believed God, put his faith in God, and God said, because you believed in me, Abraham, I am considering you righteous. Not because of anything you've done, but because of that faith in me. And then God invites Abraham into a relationship with himself, like God had always wanted from the very, very beginning when he created mankind. And, and he set up a covenant, a covenantal relationship, a, a covenant that would be represented by a mark on Abraham's body, both Abraham and all of his descendants as well. And this is what he means by circumcision and why circumcision actually comes up in this sermon. Because it's the mark of a covenantal relationship, a mark of obedience, a mark of faith. So Abraham circumcised, and so is his son Isaac, and so is Isaac's son Jacob, and so are the 12 sons of Jacob as well. Now, before I go on, let me tell you, in the Old Testament, circumcision was important, like baptism is in the New Testament, because it declares to the world that these are God's people. That these are God's people. So circumcision became so important, it became actually a tradition for the Jews. Passed from generation to generation, from father to son. But here's the deal, folks. Tradition is great. 
Circumcision was fine. Baptism is important and beneficial. But if you are only relying on your tradition to get you to heaven, you're going to come up short every time. Why? Well, look at, look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Because the patriarchs, these are the 12 sons of Jacob who have all been circumcised, because the patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Now, at that point, I just want to stop and say, excuse me. All of these guys had gone through the tradition. And apparently this tradition, circumcision, though it left a mark on their body, it did not automatically change their hearts. They've been circumcised. They, they have this mark of the covenant, right? So what did they do? They sold their brother in slavery. And before that, they actually had a plan to kill their brother. See, this is what Stephen will say of the Jewish leaders of his time, that they had uncircumcised hearts. Because the mark, the outward mark, was not supposed to be the thing that got you into a right relationship with God. It was just the signifier of that. Really, God wanted their heart. The problem with tradition, though it might be really good and help you, it will never guarantee that you can have a changed heart. Maybe you today are relying on a tradition to get you into heaven. Or a heritage, maybe. Maybe it's your, your great-grandma was the praying lady of your family, and you figured since she was a godly woman, it's going to cover you. You know, your, your, church, your, your family's gone to church for generations. My, my parents are saved. My way is paved. You know, that, that's almost like our bumper sticker. My, my, my folks are saved. My way is paved. But here's the problem. As we look at the, the Bible, God never has grandchildren. He only has children. You cannot get there on the coattails of anybody else. You must make the decision yourself. Relying on tradition will give you a false sense of security. And just because you were born into a Christian family does not make you a Christian any more than being born in a McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. <laughs> tradition, here, here's Stephen's first point. Tradition is not going to get you to heaven. For his second point, he moves on to another uh, great of the Jewish uh, history, uh, a, a wonderful man named Moses, uh, a hero of their faith. Well, look what he says there in verse 35, the last part of 35 and following. He brings up Moses. He says, Moses was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And Moses led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. By the way, this is a prophecy about Jesus one day coming and being that prophet like Moses to the people. Verse 38, he was in the assembly. Moses was in the assembly in the desert with, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received, check this out, living words to pass on to us. What were those living words? Well, it was the law. You see, for the Jew, they, they loved Moses because Moses signified the law. They loved the law. They loved Moses. They were synonymous. In fact, in Jesus' time, whenever he would say, well, you have read in Moses... Everybody knew what he was saying. You've read in the law. Moses represented the law. Now, relying on the law sounds not bad. 
because it's pretty cut and dry, pretty black and white. Like, you know what you're doing. You know what you're supposed to do. You know what you're not supposed to do. And relying on regulation to, to get you to heaven seems kind of like a no-brainer. It's kind of like, you know, when I would go off to school and I'd come home and mom was gone. She was, she was working, but she would have that list. Anybody else? Anybody else have it? You had that list for mom. And as long as you did everything on that list before my mom got home, things were great in the Hinkle household. But you, you miss one or two or three things, heads, heads will roll. Heads will roll. I, I, I promise you that. You, you want to do things well? You want things to go right for you? Well, it's easy to just say, well, I'm, I'm doing all the right things. Things should be going well with me. I got to do the list. Except for one important thing. The law was not given to us so that we would have strict adherence to the law. But here's a Bible truth. God knew that in our hearts we were sinful. We were rebellious. We found out that our pastor doesn't like the squeak of balloons. And so what do we do? We go, <laughs> you, you want proof, to, you want proof that, that we are sinful and rebellious in our hearts? Do you have to teach a two-year-old to rebel? No. no. It's like they were born with that, right? It's innate in them. Uh, and so in the book of Romans, the New Testament book of Romans, uh, Paul is writing to the believers in Rome, and he says actually the law was given to us so that we can see where we fall short of God's holy standard. And it directs us to understand that we have a need for a Savior, that we can't do this on our own. Also in the book of Romans, Paul says that the law, in a, in a kind of an interesting way, actually pushes people towards rebellion. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says this, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all sorts of covetousness. Now, if we go back to Moses, the giver of the law, giver of the regulations, even as he was up on Mount Sinai giving the law, you know what the people were doing? Look at verse 39. This is what the people were doing as he was receiving the law from God and beyond that time. But our fathers, this is what Stephen is saying, our ancestors who were supposed to follow Moses, our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. You see, the law is good. Regulation is good if we use it for the purpose that God gave it to us for. But point two that Steve is making is that regulation will not get you into heaven as well. Now, by this time, if you look at the context of the chapter, things are getting a little heated. People don't like to be told that they're wrong. And, and, and these people are getting a little bit upset at Stephen. And Stephen is probably kind of on a roll now, and he's probably getting passionate uh, because that's what happens when you're preaching and you're thinking, okay, these guys are tracking with me. And so now on his third point, he just, he swings, he swings for the, the, the cheap seats, right? He's going he's gonna to go for it because on top of everything else, tradition can't save you. Regulations are not going to get you into heaven. And by the way, number three, neither is your religion. Oh, oh. P oh you, you know, at Thanksgiving, there are two things you just don't bring up when family gets around the, the dinner table, right? What are those two things that you're not allowed to talk about when family gets together? 
politics and religion. Nah, you just you cannot go there. You cannot mess with my religion. Now, now these guys have been saying, Stephen, you're tearing down everything that we hold sacred. And they brought up the temple. Now, the temple is so important to them because it became the icon of their religion. For them, the temple was a place that man could go to make himself right with God through sacrifices. Now, there were great intentions there being made right with God. But the problem is, is who makes you right with God? You? Your religion? Religion is man-made, folks. What's going to make you right with God is not your religion. Look, look at what he says, that God's original design was not even to have a temple. Look at verses 44 and 45. Stephen says, Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. And having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. And it remained in the land until the time of David. You see, the tabernacle was a tent, a mobile tent that would get picked up, wrapped up, and carried with the people as they were going from place to place. It represented God's power and his presence. And so where the people went, guess what? God went with them. Wherever they went, there he was, protecting them, guiding them. But eventually that tabernacle is going to be replaced with a permanent structure in Jerusalem, right there. Uh, Again, in the last part of 45, it remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor, and then asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. You see, the God allowed it, and though it was a labor of love on the part of David and Solomon, it's easy to see how quickly a permanent place of worship would have changed the people's way of getting to God. No longer does God follow them. No longer is God with them wherever they go. Now they have to go to a place, to God's house. And the problem with that is that if you are going to God's house, let's say on a Sunday morning, then you can also leave God's house and go to your own house and do whatever you want to do over here because God's not with you. Why? Because God's over there. God's in his house. He doesn't care what I'm doing over here until I come back into his house. And then as a little kid, I was always told, don't run, Trey. This is God's house. And that, that put this permanence of God here. Now, if I ever want to get to God, guess what? It's on me. I have to go there. I have to do what I have to do in order to get to God. You know what that's called? That's called religion. And that's not what the Bible teaches us about how to get to heaven. It's always been a relationship. Look at what Stephen reminds us of in verses 48 and 49. However... That means that what we thought was right is not right. However, the Most High doesn't live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? You see, religion will miss the mark every time because it will put the responsibility of going to heaven squarely on you and your effort and your religious duty. 
And what I would say to you, if that's what you're relying on, is exactly what was told to a friend of mine, Jim. Jim was traveling from England to France on the channel. You know what the channel is? It's the channel tunnel. <laughs> Cute, huh? And as he was getting to France, he had never been to France before, but he had his passport, and this French government official was there interrogating him, because that's what you do when people are going to come into your country and making sure that they're, they're not going to be bringing trouble. And he continued to, to interrogate Jim, and finally he said, getting ready to stamp his passport, he goes, have you ever been to France? And Jim goes, no. And as he stamped it, he goes, good luck. Kind of ominous, you know, good luck, good luck, you've never been here before. Well, that's exactly what I tell you. If you are relying on religion to get you to heaven, good luck, good luck. <laughs> Why? Because in the Bible, in the book of Romans, Paul is very clear, no one is righteous. No, not one we will all fall short of the glory of God. And by the way, if you are just checking out churches right now and you happen to land here, let me tell you one of the strengths about Palo Butte Christian Church is you can come where you are in your journey and you're not going to be condemned because we've been in there. We're all on a journey. We're all in process. And we do extend grace as we then come alongside of you and help you follow Jesus more closely and carefully on that path of discipleship. But if you're coming here and you've got problems, <laughs> welcome, welcome to the club. We all have problems. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Jew, Gentile, religious, pagan, decent, degenerate, doesn't make a difference, folks. There's nothing in us as humans, as people who have a fallen nature. There's nothing in us to make us right with God. Not tradition, not regulation, and not religion. So what will? Oh, I'm glad you asked. I found a video. Why don't you watch this real quick? Maybe hit the lights.
Put your faith in kings, they will fall. Put your faith in your own abilities and shame will pull you down every time. Put your faith in the risen Christ and that makes all the difference in the world. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if we can get that back up on there, that would be good. I deliver to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing. This is why Resurrection Sunday is such a big deal for believers. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, says Paul, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Today is Resurrection Sunday, the holiest of all days for Christians, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, defeating our last enemy, death, and opening up the way for us to get to heaven. That's the only way. I know people don't like to be told they're wrong. You know what the Jewish leaders did to Stephen? Look at verse 57 real quick. When he told them that they were wrong, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. This is a hissy fit, folks. La, 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 la. That's what they're doing. And then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. Stephen has put his faith in something beyond tradition and regulation and religion. And he's getting ready to find out if that is well-placed, his trust, because he's getting ready to face death. And just like he patterned his life after Jesus, he then patterned his death after Jesus as well. And what Jesus said on the cross, there's a couple things that he said on the cross that actually Stephen seems to emulate here as he lay dying. First of all, on the cross, Jesus prayed that God would forgive those who put him to death. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Well, Stephen said the same thing there in verse 60. He, he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He wanted his death to reflect the love of Jesus as well. And then he says something very similar to something that Jesus said on the cross. Jesus also on the cross, right before he would die, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now, I love studying, and so I love to go back to the original language of the Bible. And I began to look that word commit up. And what that word means is to literally take intentional action. It's a self-directed thing. Jesus said, I take my spirit and I commit it to the Father. He did that out of love for us. Nobody took his life. He gave it for us in obedience to the Father's plan to open up heaven for those who put our trust in his sacrifice. And so what Stephen says there sounds very familiar to what Jesus said, except for he worded it differently. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now there's a difference between commit and receive because what Stephen was saying was this. He knew that he used this word that would mean, Jesus, will you please personally, lovingly, warmly welcome me into your kingdom. He was not committing his spirit because he knew that he had no right to do that. He was trusting in Jesus. 
I, I told you that most of the time in the New Testament, after Jesus ascends to heaven, he's always seated at the right hand of the Father. That's not the vision that Stephen sees, though. If you look at verse 56, it's pretty powerful if you understand this. He has this vision. He says, look, I see heaven open and then the Son of Man standing, not sitting, standing at the right hand of the Father. What was was Jesus doing standing? Stephen said, I trust you to receive my spirit. And just like what we would do if somebody came to our house, knocked on the door, we would get up. We would open up the way for them to come in. If you were meeting somebody at a restaurant and you wanted to be welcoming and and they were a little late and they came in, you would stand up. I believe that this is exactly what is happening. He said, Jesus, receive my spirit. And Jesus said, I will Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he earned the right to be the way, the truth, and the life. With no one coming into heaven, opening up heaven, except for him. So let me ask you again. How are you going to get to heaven? How are you going to get to heaven? There's a story that I found this uh, last week about a, a man who had, true story, He had been a Muslim, and he had converted to Christianity. That's very dangerous to do. He was shunned by his family and the officials of the city that he uh, lived in. He still had some associates who questioned his sanity for converting from Islam to Christianity. They said, don't you know that your your life is going to be very, very hard, difficult, maybe even forfeit. He said, well, I made this decision because of this. He said, let me explain this this way. He said, imagine that you're on a path to a beautiful city where there is eternal riches and bliss. And and as you're on that road, there is a fork in the road. And you don't know which way it will lead to that city. He said, but imagine that there are two men there at the fork of the road. He said, which one are you going to ask about which way to go? The one who's dead or the one who's alive? Think about that. We don't follow a dead Savior. We follow one who is alive and points the way to eternal life. What this means to you is this. Will you stop trusting in yourself? Will you stop relying on self-righteousness? Will you come and surrender your life We have a baptistry here, and we have people who will help you get prepared for baptism if you want to step into obedience to show people that you now have a mark of a covenantal relationship with God yourself. Maybe you just need to come and and pray with somebody, and we're getting ready to have that happen as we close out our our service with a song. Um, In fact, why don't you just stand right now with, with me, and I want to pray for you. And I wanted to then invite you as we sing or after we are done singing, if you want to come forward to pray with somebody or to talk with somebody about what it means to trust Jesus or to even give your life in baptism, in obedience to the commands of Jesus, we would love to have you come on down and make this Resurrection Sunday your Resurrection Sunday because Jesus lives. This is why we celebrate as believers. We now live as well. 
And I'd like to invite you to life. Why? Because I love you. I love serving as your pastor. And I know that God has some great things when you stop relying on tradition and regulations and religion to get you there and just embrace the relationship.